Imposter Syndrome is brought to you by Fake Bake, an award-winning company offering premium self-tanning products to help you achieve a stunning, natural-looking color without subjecting your skin to the damages of the sun. Fake Bake believe that you shouldn't have to sacrifice the health of your skin to get a rich, natural bronze. That's why Fake Bake have created revolutionary self-tanning products that contain no parabens. I love Fake Bake because it gives you a flawless tan and you feel and look like a Hollywood superstar, which is fabulous, of course. And in the early days of lockdown, I used it for all my Zoom calls where I looked healthy and glowing. Just go to fakebake.com, check out their fabulous range of products, including Flawless Self-Tan Liquid, the best sunless tanning product for a quick, easy and effective at-home tan. It also features a tropical black coconut scent, which is delicious. I know you'll fall in love with it. Now you can get the best tan without exposing your skin to potential damage. Oh, and you also get a free luxurious mitt that's included too. Just go to fakebake.com and get your glow with Fake Bake and just fake it. Social anxiety syndrome, better known as imposter syndrome, is a real thing. It comes in many guises and can be relentless at blindsiding people, and you'd be surprised by who it affects. I'm Nick Eade, and welcome to Imposter Syndrome. In this series, I'll be speaking to some of the most successful and talented people in the public eye who suffer from this modern phenomenon. As a black person growing up, my mum always told me, you have to be two times better than a white person, at least to get the same shot. That's my guest for today, Michelle Gale. Michelle is a singer, actor and author, but most importantly, she was bridesmaid at my two weddings. She had smash hits in the 90s with Sweetness and Do You Know and loads of other songs. Her music career followed a successful stint on EastEnders and she was the first black woman in the UK to play Belle in Disney's West End production of Beauty and the Beast. She's been hugely successful in all that she's done, but does being a black woman cause her to suffer from imposter syndrome? So here I am with Michelle. Michelle Gale and I have known each other for a long time. And we are, we're best friends. Michelle was my bridesmaid at my wedding in LA and in London. <laughs> yes. And we've been through thick and thin. So thank you so much, Michelle, for doing this with me. Oh, pleasure. As you know, Nick, I love you. And so it's a pleasure to um, have a chat in this way because we're usually very honest with each other anyway. So it's nice to kind of do it on record. <laughs> no, no, I agree with you. And I think actually, funny enough, for everyone listening, Michelle and I were out last night, yesterday. Don't worry, we were socially mm. distancing. But I think always with you, what's great about you, uh, chatting to you is that you never, you don't ever hold back. Sometimes no. I think with friendship, you you kind of, you know, you always wonder, oh, should I say this or that? But, and mm. that's really why I wanted to interview you for mm. imposter syndrome, because I felt mm. that actually your story and where you started and mm. your journey, especially with what's been happening now with Black Lives Matter and mm. also your amazing work that you're going to be doing about the history retold, I think yes. is actually, it all fits and it all feels right. So I suppose we'll start at the beginning. Like obviously mm. you got into acting at a very early age. How did. did you ever feel like from from that early age that you were different from everybody or did you just fit in? It was weird because um, I think the people around me, my peers 
um, in my area felt I was different before I, ident I identified that I was different. I was brought up in a really um, urban area called Halsden. Um, General Levy uh, used to live around the corner from me. He was my best friend. Okay. We used to walk to school together um, at age five. We used to take ourselves to school. Um, he of the wicked, um, uh -huh. junglist, massive, yeah, him, General Levy. So we grew up together and we were in this area called Halsden, which is very predominantly black an Asian and Irish area. So it was like an area of ethnic minorities just kind of all were piled together and got along. Um, and pretty soon um, into it, I used to dance a lot and sing a lot. And in fact, um, a lot of my school kind of, the coolest people had to fight. Yeah. And that's how you identified who the best girl and best boy was. They used to organize a fight in the playground and you have to fight each other. And the winner was the strongest girl of the school. And that's literally how crazy. Got, yeah. That's literally how you got respected in the junior school that I went to. Um, so my headmistress literally went to my mum and said, Michelle shouldn't be at the school. She's <laughs> not. Can you believe that? She She's not a fighter. House. <laughs> she went to our house and told my mum that Michelle shouldn't be at the school. This is not the environment um, for her. Mm -hmm. So my mum really took that on board really seriously. Um, and I was doing very well academically. I'd been moved up a year. And the headmistress has said, look, I've identified that she really likes singing and dancing. So maybe do that as an outlet for her. But she really shouldn't be at the school. So my mum looked up this stage school, Barbara Speaks Stage School, and said, I'll just send you here. And then, you know, she basically listened to the teacher. Um, Which is good because a lot of parents don't do that. And also a lot of teachers wouldn't take the time out to identify that and tell your parents. I agree. So, so my mum always respects her. her name's Mrs. Best, actually. My mum always mentions it, that she took that time out to come to our house and sit my mum and dad down. Um, and so they paid. Barbara Street was a, was a private school and they just, scraped the money together and just thought okay we've got to do this you know the teacher is saying we need to take her out and, and invest in her and so they did and I really obviously got lots of love from my parents for that um and it changed my life going to that school in many many ways because that whole fighting to get yourself known uh within about a year I knew that's not going to work at this school um and so I really got into singing and dancing and just being in a really positive environment where you were encouraged to be who you were, mm. um, but in a constructive way. And also what's good about anything like drama school, obviously I went to drama school and you went to a school, is that you do feel luckily in it, within those environments, there's the prejudice kind of goes because mm. it's all about, as you say, kind of working together. You learn from a really young age to actually sort of develop skills that you probably most people who go to like a university or normal school wouldn't develop because mm -hmm. you are interacting, you're creating different characters, you're thinking mm -hmm. about your physical body. Yeah. It's, I think the benefits of drama school to me are the best thing ever. I, I just think what they identify is the things that you're scared of in, um, I find normal straight schools, I call them, is yeah. individuality. And that's exactly what drama school wants is individuality. So yeah. you're not, you're no longer getting the finger pointed at you for being different. You're actually yeah. being celebrated for being different. Um, so, so that was a real eye opener for me. And then when I used to go to, back home, they used to tease me and shout at me and say, who do you think you are going to private school and stuff like that? Um, 
but it was worth it for me. Well, yeah, definitely. And then from there, obviously you started to be seen. And how did you get to do Grange Hill? And they came round, they did an audition. Um, And this audition was for a girl that loved rap music. And I loved rap music. I used to go to every single hip hop concert. I've seen Run DMC, I've seen Beastie Boys. (laughs) Any like rapper that's been to London in those days, I had seen them. Um, So it seemed like a natural fit. And so um, I was sent down to the audition and I kind of just spoke to them about my passion for rap and they could tell that this girl really does know what she's talking about. So um, I had about two or three auditions and then I got to the part. Amazing. And mm. was that quite interesting? Did you, or did you just feel like really easily you got the part and there you were in a show on TV every, you know, every week? No, Grange was hard and good in many ways because it, it was the show that you always watched as a kid. Yeah. You always wanted to be in it and all of a sudden you're in it. But to be like, I'd been working on it as an extra before. So I'd kind of observed what it was like um, for the other people who had main parts. But when you're actually in it, it's, you can't legislate for at 14, any, everywhere you go, because kids were watching it. Kids know who you are. I was able to pay my own school fees. I had my own bank account. I could buy, you know, Nike Wimbledon trainers. Yeah. Um, the important things that you, as a kid, you're begging your mum to buy you, I could afford to buy. And that was a real eye-opener that I was, I became kind of in charge of my own budget and um, a mini adult in a way. And did you feel though, did you feel that imposter syndrome might have kicked in then? Because for some people coming from where you were, like in Harlesden, and then suddenly, as you say, having your own little micro business, basically you're the mm. business. Does mm. that, did you not think to yourself, oh my God, why am I... How am I doing this? Or were you? I always thought that because also not just that, there were many people in my school that I'd identified as way more talented than me. So I always kept thinking, well, why me? Why am I on this show? Why do people know who I am? And it always made me feel like I've got to work harder to prove that I deserve that spot rather than thinking I deserve it. I always felt like, man, I've, I don't know how I've done this. And I've, I've probably only got this part because... I knew about rap, therefore I need to get my acting up. And the kids, when I was an extra on it, the kids were mainly from Anishir and they, their acting was so natural. I used to watch them and think, you guys are brilliant. You know, Anishir had this really naturalistic way of acting. Yeah. I used to watch them all the time and think, I want to be like that. You know, so when I got my chance, I really did watch how the others from Anishir did it and kind of learned that way. Yeah. But that's good. It's good to see that you weren't complacent and and that you always wanted to learn and evolve Mm because that's important, I think. Mm, Always, yeah. And I never ever felt like like brilliant or good enough. Do you know what I mean? There's always someone better, always. And uh, so I wanted to get better. I remember when I was at drama school, I got a job. I got, basically, I I got a extra part on a film called Mary Riley with Julia Mm -hmm. Roberts. And I ended up getting a speaking part on it. And mm-hmm. I went back to university, to, to my drama school. It was my last year. Everyone was like, no, you didn't. You didn't do that. And you're like, no, I did. And, and by the end of it, I actually felt so like shy to tell anybody that I'd done it yeah. and achieved yeah. it because you just don't, you just, you don't have that faith or that, that in yourself, do you? It's weird, isn't it? It's weird because it's, it's, I was living in two environments. So in stage, it's like, well done, you've got a job, blah, blah, blah. this is why you're here. But then in, in the world outside, it was very much who do you think you are, why yeah. you're on TV. So, so you're playing these two kind of roles all the time just to manage 
not getting beaten up (laughs) (laughs) pissing people off too much do you know what I mean so it was yeah it was it's a tricky time at 14 managing those things exactly but then obviously after that then you get EastEnders and that changes everything and how did you get that how did you get into that role again it was auditions I was I'd actually left school and then I was working, I, 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 was, I had this gap in between where I did an A-level, did a play, and I didn't get another job. And mm. then I, I, so I had this thing where I said, well, I've got to earn money. So I started working at London Weekly Advertiser, selling advertising space. Oh um, and I had it? that job, literally. I got the job because I thought, I've got to do it, I've got to do it. Got the job, and then about five weeks into the job, I auditioned for EastEnders and got EastEnders. So I can say I have had a normal job for like six <laughs> <laughs> Were you any good at it, Michelle? I can imagine you adver- selling advertising space. I can't imagine. I was yeah. rubbish. I was like <laughs> so rubbish because I'm too honest and I feel bad like selling things. Like I, I just would listen. I'd be really nice and friendly, but I could never seal the deal. I wasn't ruthless enough. So yeah. I remember when I got my first sale and writing it on the board, I was so relieved. Um, and then I got EastEnders and I thought, well, thank goodness, because this really isn't for me. And what was it like, EastEnders? Was it hard work? EastEnders was hard work, but a lot of fun. Because remember, I was with myself, Sid Owen, um, Daniela Westbrook, Gary, who played my brother. There were like about four or five of us at the same age group that really were just enjoying it. Um, and we, were, we had our problems on the show. Um, but for us, we were having lots of fun and we were often getting in trouble because we used to drive the cars around the lot and just <laughs> run havoc. <laughs> but in those, in those days, that was when, I mean, EastEnders is big now, but it was massive then. It, it was, was millions 18, million. Yeah, 18 million used to watch each episode. That's how big it was. How did it feel like you suddenly, obviously people knew who you were, but then suddenly you propelled into that kind of stardom must be really difficult to deal with. It was very hard. It was hard because with Grange Hill, it was children and I could go where I wanted. With EastEnders, it's literally adults, all, all walks of life, all demographics. Um, yeah, and it was, it was hard. I, I didn't... I'm not sure how much I kind of took on and how much I shut out. Mm. I, I think I shut a lot of it out and just concentrated on the work. And then um, I never did the whole utilize this, do magazines, do photo shoots. I just couldn't get get grasp of that. I didn't want to do any of that. And I couldn't really understand why people wanted to be in the paper buying clothes and stuff like that, which a lot of people used to say, you've got to do this other bit on the side. I never got my head around that. I could never do that. I, I was always singing, you see, and I always felt that EastEnders, funnily enough, would be a route into my singing career. I never ever felt that completely 100% committed to EastEnders, even though once I got it, I was very committed to trying, again, to trying to be good, to trying to earn it, to try and, yeah, I was very committed to that. But I always knew in my heart of hearts I wanted to sing. But if you know, but the thing is, though, that I think in anything that you do, and, and like you say, okay, it's not a conventional job, but as you progress in your, as you get older, you do see things as stepping stones. They're things to yes. give, you the, give you the block to go and move on to something else. And I suppose yeah. your one was music. Did that come easily or did you have to graft to get that? You know, you became a, a proper mu- mu- musician and a recording artist. 
that was hard. But the thing is, is that before I'd got to EastEnders, I was in this group and we'd been working really, really hard and we'd been closed so many times. We'd had a hard take where, you know, our management weren't quite what we thought and we thought we were going to get a deal and we hadn't. And that's why I took EastEnders because I thought, oh my gosh, we've had such a hard time with, with the rec recording getting in. And then once I got EastEnders, I was still making demos and I was meeting people and everyone was quite like, mm, let's see, you want to do something that, was a bit more credible than they could kind of get their head around and they yeah. they weren't sure if that would work um and then i just literally who ended up being my manager i i uh spoke to him and he said my partner he's not really gonna buy you coming from a, a soap so i'm gonna have to find a way around to introducing you to him because he wants really really credible artists and he may not he may look down on you because you went to a soap so i've got a really um work out how I introduce you. And then EastEnders used to be filmed the same place as Top of the Pops. Okay. And I was walking down the corridor and uh, someone stopped me and said, oh my gosh, do you sing? And I was like, yeah, why are you asking? Because no, you've just got to look. There's something about you. And he gave me his card. And the person that had been saying, I've got to introduce you to, that was the guy. Oh my and God. literally serendipitous. I love so, that. Yeah. It was completely um, serendipity. And then, then you know it's, you are in the right place at the right time. Yeah. Um, and so after that point, they took me on board and uh, managed me and we just started working from there and writing songs. And it was really hard to get that first single um, and to find something that I was happy with and the record company were happy with. Um, but once we got looking up and then we went off to meet Nardo Michael Walden, who is just brilliant and once yeah. we went off to work with him that's how we found sweetness and kind of found the kind of the sound of the album that whole vibe i remember being at university and buying looking up and i was oh, so man. i loved it it was my favorite song and it Thanks. kind of just was such a good anthem for everybody i loved there. that song and i can say that because i didn't write it and i remember <laughs> someone playing it to me and i'm going i absolutely want to sing that song um so yeah it, it really did set me up in a way as it went obviously when it went into the charts what mm. did you think were you like did you feel okay this is where i meant to be or was it just like oh my god oh my gosh no i mean you've got to think when i was a kid i used to pretend i was on top of the pops all the time yeah. so, so i remember seeing my first cd cover and thinking i cannot believe it huh. and then actually going on top of the pops was just it's like a dream come true. And then you start saying to yourself, well, you've got to set yourself other goals. Like, I don't know. That was like a dream <laughs> to me. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you've got those things. You think, well, where do I go from here? Um, so it was, it was a wonderful kind of fairy tale time for me. A girl from Hurlston doesn't get those things. Do you know what I mean? So I had to yeah. really um, get my head around it. And, and I, I did, I've got to say, I worked really, 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 really hard. I did because I just felt how am I going to get there and then how am I going to maintain it? And I, I never really sat there and went, whoa, isn't this great? I'm having a great, isn't this fantastic? I'm in the charts. I was always thinking about the next song or the, the next chart position. Or I, I really wish if I could go back, I could enjoy and live in those moments more. Yeah. But that mm. must be the hard thing because I think, especially in the music industry, because it's a chart, you mm. can see where it, it's like a popularity chart, isn't it? Mm. Because mm. It's so blatant. It's so obvious mm. that that must be really difficult because you always want to be better than the, the song before or whatever. Yes. How was, was that really hard keeping that momentum up? 
It's very hard. And also when you're a kid from Halston and you're in the charts, you're just happy to be in the charts. Whereas for a record company, if you're not top five, if you're not this, it's almost like a failure to them. So you've Mm. got to really get your head around really fast about what is a success because I just wanted to do this thing and I've been on top of the pops and I'm pretty happy because that was like, whoa. Yeah, but you're you're, you're in the end, you're making money for people, loads of people. Exactly. And then that's when you start to learn the business end of it and what it really means to them. And it's very hard to then be in your own feelings about your successes because you're always judging yourself on how they view it. And that's the bit I I would want to change. I would want to be able to say, do you know what, Michelle? You never thought you'd be on top of the pops and enjoy that as opposed to, oh, well, how was the performance? Oh, the record company thought this. Oh, I should have done this. Do you know what I mean? I never really um, managed to enjoy it in the way that I'd like to have. Yeah, and I, think, I think that I'm sure a lot of people feel that way because when you're caught up in that moment, you're mm. just kind of on a treadmill, aren't you? And yes, you, you are. You've got to carry on and carry on and then until mm-hmm. you basically come off it. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. when Sweetness, Sweetness was massive, wasn't it? Sweetness, yes, it was. It was. I, I mean, God bless. It did um, really well. And it, 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 that is probably what has set me up. Um, career-wise in music anyway it gave it gave people lots of time for me so I'm forever grateful um, for that song yeah and because everybody remembers it and also what was great is sometimes when I'm on Twitter not stalking you of course because I love you (laughs) but I love it when you're on like this morning and then people say oh my god Michelle and Sweetness is still my favorite song and it's like I love that because Mm. it really is one of those songs that doesn't you do not stop smiling when you listen to it and you yeah it's a happy happy song mm-hmm. um and i always remember because um Nald michael warden was playing me a bunch of songs in the car and i kept saying no it's not quite right it's not quite right and then because i took note so many songs sweetness came on and he started to press forward and i went stop no 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 this is the one and he was quite surprised he's like really i went, yeah, I said, this is the one for me. And um, I never looked back after that point. I love that. I mm. love it. Imposter Syndrome is brought to you by Fake Bake. Fake Bake believes that you shouldn't have to sacrifice the health of your skin to get a rich, natural bronze tan. That's why Fake Bake have created revolutionary self-tanning products that contain no parabens. Just go to fakebay.com to check out their fabulous range of products, including Flawless Self-Tan Liquid, the best sunless tanning product for a quick, easy, and effective at-home tan. Just go to fakebay.com and get your glow with Fakebake and just fake it. Then, obviously, you went and you starred on the West End in... Yes. uh, Beauty and the Beast. And I think, yeah. I know it sounds really silly, but from an imposter syndrome point of, point of view, that kind of is, a, not. I know it sounds really silly, but like a visual imposter syndrome because everybody's view of what Belle should be is everything that you weren't because yes. you were the first black person in the UK. I know that Tony Braxton had done it on Broadway. That's right. You to open up and to take on that role. Did you, did you have a lot of sort of backlash on that or how was that embraced? Well, there was. I, I, I know Disney America told me, you know, we've got to let you know. People keep saying the black bell won't work, but we're determined to have you. So in one sense, they were saying, we believe in you. But in another sense, they were letting me know that um, 
people didn't think it would work. And so that put a lot of, uh, I put a lot of pressure on myself to deliver. And I'd never done a, a West End show before. I'd never done eight shows a week. I suddenly sing a soprano. So there's a lot of stuff thrown at me. Um, and I actually got sick. I got um, nodules during that show and I had no clue. I literally had, didn't know what to ask for. I didn't have the tools and it was somebody, um, at stage manager that said to me, I think you've got pre-nodules. Oh and um, he sent me to Garfield Davis, who's like the, the expert on, on voices. And lo and behold, I did have pre-nodules. Um, and he literally saved my voice, um, that stage manager telling me. Um, so, yeah, I learned a lot on that job, but it was like a baptism of fire. Do you know what's so weird? And we've talked about this, but a while ago, you know, I used to work in the Dominion and I used to do the group sales for that show. So that's, that's amazing. That's crazy that I had had your picture on my wall and wow. then sold your tickets for you. And it was really interesting because we used to, you know, we used to sell groups. And when I say mm. groups, the, the Dominion is the biggest auditorium in the UK. It's yes, 3,000 3, seats, you know, mm. and it was really interesting because we'd had as a massive show, Disney had put such a lot into it from the marketing mm. point of view. And, you know, I was there on the phones, like you were selling your advertising space. Mm. I was selling tickets to old age mm. pensioner groups. Mm. And it was really interesting because from our point of view, there was a bit, you know, we had to convince people because yeah. it, you physically did not look like the representation yeah. of a bell that their children their or their, they had seen when they'd seen the cartoon. Mm -hmm. And we, so we used to be told, you're selling it on Michelle Gale, the name Michelle Gale, you're selling it on her. Mm. And then we'd be selling, and then we'd be told, you're selling it on Beauty and the Beast. And then we had a really interesting conference call, actually, with, I can't mm. remember his name, Schumacher, whatever his name was. Mm. Um, yeah, Thomas Schumacher. Yeah, Thomas Schumacher, who sat us down and said, mm. remember, guys, in the theatre, um, acting is colorblind so mm -hmm. hamlet can oh, be bad, blessing you know and he was really strong on that he said remember that as soon in in the theater in broadway west mm. end it doesn't matter mm. everything's mm. colorblind and i obviously mm. knew that because i'm i went to drama school but mm. to hear someone say that and to be so passionate about it and what it meant and he talked about the impact that tony braxton had had with oh, it. oh yeah and they were very passionate to me too. That's why yeah. I took the job. They totally believed in it. They believed in the concept and they believed it was the right thing to do. Um, and I've got tons of respect for um, Thomas Schumacher and, and um, Disney America yeah. because they took a chance on me and they were determined to follow through on it and support me in that sense. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and it, you know, I know you got ill, but it worked because it put you mm. in front of so many people. And yes, get, it did. They saw you in a in a different light. Mm -hmm. and I Absolutely. Think, so, and then obviously now you, unfortunately, because of COVID, you're not. But you have been starring for a year as Hermione in uh, in Harry Potter. How's that been? Because again, that's, a lot of people think of her as a, a, a white character. Yeah, that's right. Um, it has been fantastic. And I wasn't the first woman cast in the role, so I haven't had the same amount of backlash as, um, as Noma received. But um, again, like I said, with, with characters and, and stage being colorblind, it has been very interesting um, 
just seeing people's reaction to Hermione. And to be honest, it's been fantastic. And because Hermione is older, she is 40 at this stage, she would have changed anyway. And I think that's why it's easier for them, them to accept change yeah. full stop because she is a different woman. Um, and so it's been a very positive reaction. And in a, in a way, Belle was a lot more hard than, than Hermione. I mean, they're both iconic characters. Yeah, Belle was, what, 20 years ago? And that was yeah. in yeah. A, a time where people were still... Well, I mean, listen, we all know people are prejudiced now, but in those yeah. days, that was a mm. massive, massive change. Yes, it was. It was a massive change for them. Um, so, yes, they've, they, this has been very, very well supported. Um, yeah, it, it's and it's a great show. I'm so blessed to be a part of such a fantastic show. How do you think, obviously, talking about what's going on at the moment with COVID-19, how has that affected you and has it affected the, the whole entertainment world? It's crazy, isn't it? It's been disastrous. It's been, I, I know actors who are, you know, um, you know, really, really, really unable to uh, make, keep their houses going or their rent going or yeah. you know it, it has been disastrous because so many actors fall um in between the gaps so they can't um access any money so the new funds that are being made available are, are very needed but what's more needed is a plan we need to know when we're going to be able to work again because um a lot of people just pulling their hair out and and really do need to make money well, yeah, it's about making money. And also, as you say, the thing about the people forget about the West End is it's it's about the show, but it's also about the whole environment around it. Mm -hmm. It's not just mm -hmm. the actors, it's the makeup mm -hmm. artists and the dressers right. and, mm -hmm. you know, and it was people who work at the stage door of these establishments and, and the merchandise. Like as soon That's as right. that whole industry goes, it's just, I mean, it's really scary. And there's also a microeconomy around the theatre, as in restaurants yeah. and shops and stores. That means if you're not coming into theatre, you're not accessing all those other uh, ways for people to make revenue and, and to generate money. So it's, it's disastrous, really. And um, we're in the hands of the government. I know, I know. And, and COVID, scary. of course. I mean, they are in the hands of COVID too. But it, it's just... I just feel that the government could have been so much more proactive and so much earlier. Um, when you've got places like Birmingham Rep making people redundant, you know how deeply this has hit. Mm. I think also as well, like you and I were chatting yesterday when we had our, sun our Sunday roast, you know, if you think about, they're saying that pantomimes don't happen, then because they're such a massive revenue generator for towns mm -hmm. and cities in the UK that this mm -hmm. could really, really damage all those infrastructures. I think people yeah. kind of at first, you know, they didn't think about that actually performing arts are so intrinsic into what yeah. we are about. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, and to towns and cities making money. Yeah. You know, I, saw, I read an article that you did recently about with regards to Black Lives Matter in Grazia, which I thought mm -hmm. was so fascinating because you were talking about how you were made to feel when you were in recording, et cetera. And I wanted to yeah. just ask you really again, again, you know, this is all about imposter syndrome, but it's about, you know, I think, I don't know, does, does, do, because of your race, do you think that you have that imposter syndrome even more so than you, than you would if you were white? As a, as a black person growing up, my mum always told me, you have to be 
two times better than a white person, at least to get the same shot. So I've been indoctrinated with that belief since I was about seven years old. Okay, mm -hmm. so I've always believed that I have to be work harder, try more, never give up. It has made me very, very, very resilient. Um, and so with the Black Lives Matter movement, the thought of somebody, me not having to tell my child that is very appealing. I shouldn't have to tell my child he has to be two times better. My, yeah. my child should have equality and an equal chance rather than have to be, I mean, there's always this tag saying black excellence as if, you know, you have to be excellent to make your mark. And actually there's a lot of people in this world that made the mark who are very mediocre. Yeah. So I'd love to see black mediocrity doing well. Do you know what I mean in this <laughs> sense? Because, because so many people in roles are mediocre yeah. and the black person is, is told you cannot be that. Yeah. The one thing you can't be if you want to be a success is mediocre. You have to be excellent. Outstanding, yeah. Yeah, you have to be outstanding to make your mark. And that's a lot of pressure, Nick. And so of course you have imposter syndrome because you always feel, am I good enough? Look at the mm. bar, look, look, look at the things that Beyonce does. Look at the amount of jobs I've done. Nick, I've written novel, yeah. I've written TV scripts, I've made records, I've acted. Now some people, okay, this is so weird, right? Like, so some people, uh, white middle-class think almost, God, who do you think she is? Who does she think she is writing novels and all this stuff? I went to Oxford and who does she think she is to be this confident to write all this stuff? Whereas a black person, you're thinking, I have to do all these things just to earn a living, you know? So I've yeah. got to do it, I've got to smash it, I've got to try everything I can. I can't say no, because they're gonna throw me out as soon as they can. So, so the perception to like the comfortable middle-class person is, oh my God, she must think a lot of herself, would be very confident. Whereas as a black person, you know, you have to try everything you can to be able to sustain a living and sustain your name. And so if it means I've got to, not do drugs so that I can write a book and not drink. You know, the first time I was ever drunk, I was 33. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I couldn't afford to get drunk. drunk. <laughs> I couldn't afford to get drunk. I couldn't afford to do drugs because I kept thinking, this is going to be snatched from me at any point. I need to master the next thing. I can't have a hangover. You know, that's the reality. I, I agree with you there, but I also think being in this industry, in the entertainment industry, full stop, you have, you just, it's relentless. It, you cannot stop, can you? Yeah. You can't rest on your laurels unless you are that probably 2%. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. You can't. And you're always told that someone bigger or better is or younger is on their way up. And you have to really manage that. Um, I, I like to champion other women. I don't like to see them as rivals or you've got to knock them. I just think it's not healthy. And yeah. it's definitely not healthy to judge yourself on whether you're in the papers or column inches. Because I just think that is a, a road to ruin. And so you have to really train your mind to not care about that stuff and just care about trying to do good work and hoping that that will then equate to a, a career. Yeah. But then that's a really good attitude you have. And I think that attitude is is in because you've actually had to learn your craft mm -hmm. whereas you know a lot of people in the entertainment industry and i you know are reality stars or mm -hmm. have never actually really had to learn a craft they've just basically mm -hmm. kind of like got it out of some mm -hmm. osmosis or they've got it from doing a show and yeah. i think there's a real difference between the two isn't there yeah there's a huge difference and 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 
I feel like a lot of the reality stars, you feel sorry for them when they come on the shows because you, you know they'll be chewed up and spat out because the industry doesn't really respect them. They're, they're an opportunity for uh, corporate channels and corporate sponsors to make money for that moment but there's no real long-term investment in yeah. a reality star's career and sometimes you do feel sorry for them and of course it'd be the, the odd person that that is the exception to the rule but generally um it's it's quite sad i think and i will always say to any of my children learn learn a craft have a talent and hone that. Don't try and take that the quick short route because you may make money, but I'm not not even sure after a while how rewarding even that is without having uh, some kind of substance to why you're making money. Well, no, because I agree with you. I, I listen. You know, I work and have worked with lots of different talents, and when you hear about, you know, they may make their millions, but their their happiness is definitely not there, and mm. it kind of. You, as you just said, you don't care about being in the magazines, but some of some people, in especially reality stars, that's all they can do. Yeah, and that's how they, that's their currency, but also that's yeah. actually how they kind of negotiate their worth. Mm-hmm. Bit, and they obviously probably have massive imposter syndrome because some yes. of them used to work on an airline, and now they're they're earning two million pounds, and they're on yeah. a Saturday night TV show. Mm-hmm. So it's a crazy, it's a crazy world. So you you are you've created a really amazing movement, which is a, an arts project, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That's now, right, called The World that. Reimagined. It's called The World Reimagined, and we um, we started working on it a year ago. Um, just general conversation about the lack of knowledge around the slave trade. And uh, what people don't realise is that Yes, Britain abolished the slave trade, but Britain also made a lot of money from the slave trade and set up a lot of institutions and systems um, around the slave trade. And, and that also many of the kind of slurs um, to kind of dehumanize black people uh, about them being aggressive, animalistic, all, all kinds of slurs I could, I could, but I won't reel off, yeah. were actually created around the slave trade to allow people to then not want it banned. So for the greater world, they had to believe that black people were subhuman in some way to get their heads around something that they intrinsically knew was wrong. They knew it'd be wrong to do that, but then if you market it as, actually these people are not like us, they're very, very different in fact, that's how the slave trade lasted for so long. And it's only when um, free slaves that became free, like Ignatius Sancho came over, and started writing truthful accounts of the experience that made the Quakers and William Wilberforce, et cetera, go, this is a disgrace. Mm-hmm. Um, so we needed to hear those true accounts and for them to meet Ignatius Sancho and see, oh my God, this is a very intelligent guy. It's yeah. not how we, not what we were sold, um, for people to realize and what's happened is, is that a lot of those slurs have remained, yes. but the education about how they came about and the education about Britain's role in the slave trade has disappeared. Yeah. And so there's a massive gap in learning. And, and then that means that certain situations um, surrounding being black just don't have the same empathy. They just don't because there's, there's not the education around how this came to be and how we came to be here. Um, And so we really wanted an art project that was a mass participation one that children and community communities can participate in that would educate them, but also build empathy. Because once you're involved in kind of creating the art, which um, the community groups and 
and um, school children will be working with artists to create the art, it means that they ha naturally have to have an empathy and understanding for it in order to uh, learn about it and then do give an artistic interpretation. So we felt that it educates but also builds empathy and understanding. And we think that that's key to us all moving forward. And it also makes black and brown people realize that they count and, and yeah. how much they've actually contributed to this country. And, and for that to be respected is very important because a lot of times people feel invisible. Um, so it was about building all of those things. And it feels like, I mean, obviously now, more, more than ever, so relevant when people are, you know, all over the world, you know, in solidarity, you know, uh, protesting for things like Black Lives Matter. Mm. But also, it's a great way of, as you say, educating people because, you know, we all, we all know stuff, but we don't know everything. And yeah. this is, as you say, is a great way using art as a conduit mm. to, to support. That's right. And then the Colson statue was a great example, right? Because when people pull the statue down, a lot of people are like, oh, this is disgraceful. And then they found out what he'd done. And yeah. then most people like, well, why did he have a statue in the first place? That was just like one step in education. Once people knew what Edward Colson had done in history, that made people think, oh, he should never have had a statue. And that's how, once you get empathy involved and understanding and education involved, that's how easily people's moods can turn. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to point out is that, at least give people the access to the knowledge and the education and allow them to form an informed view. Yeah, and, and, and that informed view is what everybody now should be taught. Mm -hmm. and everybody now should have a, an opinion, you know, a really positive opinion on. And I think, you know, yes. I think there is going to be a massive shift. And I think, but then, you know, you and I discussed this yesterday about diversity and mm -hmm. how, how that's going to look. Because mm -hmm. I, one of the things you don't want is tokenism. And I know mm -hmm. whether it's a fashion, fast fashion brand or fashion brand or whether it's television or mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, the BBC deciding they, you know, they're creating various different things with regards to diversity. I, one thing I don't want is for that tokenism to be either, you know, people forget about it, which hopefully won't. I, I definitely don't want tokenism, but I definitely think that black people deserve a shot at, at something which for 400 years you've had a system that is that has favored the white middle class straight male mm -hmm. in this system and in this country for 400 years i think black people can get a couple of years shot at it and see how we do do you know what i mean and, and you know sometimes I think you're going to do really well with it as well <laughs> No, because sometimes you have to break it down that simply because a lot of people think, well, you know, these guys are here on total merit and it's not. Yeah. Actually, they're there because their families and their friends did this and they went to the same schools. And, and the, the kind of the myth that people are there because they're brilliant. Well, is Donald Trump brilliant? Okay. No. Is, is he brilliant? No. No, but he's still the most powerful man on the earth. I mean, yeah. is Boris Johnson, would you describe him as brilliant? But he did go to Eton and he did go to the right schools and he went to the right unis and he knew the right people. So let's forget this kind of tokenism when we can say for 400 years, there has been a kind of tokenism that has favored one type of person for of a very, very, very long time. And Which so let's just get to the business of representing what this country looks like now and giving people a fair shot at it and a proper shot, not one year, not two years, a proper shot. Okay, maybe not 400 years, but let's see what we do in 10. You know, yeah. let's, let's, let's give it that. 
Well, yeah, and I, I actually agree with you with regards to that. I think the most important thing is it's about that longevity and it's about mm-hmm. not monitoring it, but it's mm-hmm. actually looking at how how it moves, how it is actually... I mean, I totally I, I agree with you. Listen, I mean, it's it's similar to yesterday in the newspapers. You know, the Sun had a front page of a premiership footballer who came out but wouldn't yes. be identified. Mm-hmm. And you're sitting there going, this still happened yesterday it's still not accepted and you know it it's like with everything it's like what you know something has got to give and something Something has to give give. and like I said you have to be allowed to fail I mean Boris Johnson's been sacked I think a couple of times from his job and he still became prime minister you know give give black people a proper shot you know allow them to fail and give them other chances because no one can ever get it right all of the time but if there's kind of like this big magnifying glass on the black person who's given this shot oh my god they didn't do well so what so many people haven't done well the first time they've tried but they have been given second chances um and that's what this is about real proper involvement real proper empathy and support um for people who just haven't had the same amount of chances or experiences and and it's about supporting that yeah and it's amazing to hear, obviously, your passion for it, but also you know that it's going to make a really big impact. And I think that's Huge. what's so exciting about it. And also, Michelle, there's nothing mediocre about you or I. We know that. <laughs> <laughs> I can say that. Thank you, honey. Darling, don't you worry. So, Michelle, thank you so much for doing Imposter Syndrome. The last question I've got for you, if you could be uh, anybody else for just one day, mm-hmm. who would it be and why? Uh, Michelle Obama, I just got so much respect for her, her grace, her dignity, her intelligence. And I just love to be her for a day and, and, and see, just learn from her. Like I want to absorb a lot of who she is and how she, she handles uh, situations. Got a lot to learn from her, I think. So yeah, Michelle Obama. And also if you're in, with Barack, he just, it's the same person who just go Michelle. So, you know, go Michelle, exactly. Michelle Obama. <laughs> but I think, I mean, I think, I think she is one of the most inspiring people out there. And I think what's great about her is, as it should be, is that people just see her for her and that's mm-hmm. it. And for her grace, intelligence and her compassion and passion. And I think, you know, if we all can take a bit from her and also from you, because you're absolutely amazing. Uh-huh. And, you know, the funny thing is going from a from a fan to my best and dearest friend has been the most wonderful journey I've ever had in my life. And I love you very much. Thank you so much for being part of this imposter syndrome. And it's so great to speak to you. And I can't wait for for going out for cocktails very soon. Now you're drinking. (laughs) (laughs) That's our show for today. I hope you liked it and found it both entertaining and enlightening. If you did, please subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. And while you're there, give us a five-star review, just to make us feel we deserve it. Follow us on at PodPeopleUK, at Nick Eid, and at Michelle Gale one Imposter Syndrome was presented by me, Nick Eid, and produced by Mike Hansen for Pod People Productions. Theme music by Mike as well. We'll be back in your feed next Thursday. See you then.
good people. Thank you to our sponsor, Fake Bake. Check out their amazing range of healthy self-tanning products on fakebake.com. Yes, that's fakebake.com.